Hi everyone, Cassie here. Just want to give a quick disclaimer. I am going to be using quotes from the 1960s in this episode, so there will be language that I would never use myself, but I do not want to change the historical accuracy of the topics that we're going to be discussing today. So just look out for those when you're listening to today's episode. Happy listening. You can't separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. Malcolm X. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know, sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good, they were evil, they were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. Back in 1945, the drama of Manhattanville Sacred Heart, where Jean and Ethel were roommates, could all be traced back to the Happy Husband Hunting Club. We learned such things as how to take care of trees and flowers, so if we had an estate, we would know how to manage it. Remembered a classmate? Wait, this is a real actual club. This isn't just like a joke created by the students. From everything that I've read, that is the title of the actual official club at Manhattanville College in New York. Because of the war, everybody was getting married a lot earlier. So there was a lot of rushed weddings. There was a lot of people getting married around like 17 years old. And so if girls didn't already have a prospect around 17 years old, they were terrified that they were just going to be single for the rest of their life and become an old spinster. Yeah. In fact, quote, I can remember Jean announcing that if she didn't have an engagement ring by the time she was 25, she was going to buy a gold ring and go all over Europe as a merry widow. (laughs) A friend from school said. One evening, as Jean was leaving for a date... Ethel screamed down the corridor, Get him to put a ring on your finger! Jean couldn't really have been too concerned, though, because she grew up in a debutante society quite like her sisters, and though she wouldn't be presented in front of the king and queen as Rosemary and Kick had been, nor to British society as Eunice had been, she did have the opportunity to be debuted to New York's elite. Hello, Upper East Siders. Quote, Mother said I could come out in New York at Christmas, or I could go skiing. I went skiing. Jean recalled. (laughs) The Kennedys and their matchmaking. 
So we've talked about how Kick picked Sarge for Eunice, and Eunice, in a roundabout way, picked Peter for Pat. Well, Jack's contribution was to try to set one of his sisters up with Red Faye. Needle in the leg, Red Faye. Yeah, that's him. Quote. Jack wanted me to fall in love with one of his sisters. He was kind of lining me up with Eunice. There was no one else around for her, and I was the logical one, close to her age. And I kept saying, God, Jack, if you want to pair me up, why don't you let me pair up with Jean? And that caused a little embarrassment. Jack said to his father, well, I think maybe Red and Jean would be a better go. And the old man said, no way. They went on a couple of dates, and then with no explanation, Red stopped seeing her. Nothing for Jean yet. But that wasn't going to stop her from putting her matchmaking opinions out there. So at this point, Bobby, Jean, and Teddy are all still in college, and Christmas break is rolling around. So the Kennedys had a ski trip planned. Seems like one of their favorite vacations, Mm -hmm. the skiing. (laughs) Definitely. So Jean just happened to invite her very best friend, Ethel, along to spend winter break in Canada. And Ethel just happened to spend most of that winter break in Canada alongside a scrawny and very socially awkward 20-year-old Bobby. (laughs) Lawrence Lima reports that, quote, Ethel and Bobby looked as if they could have been brother and sister. With his scrawny build, antenna-like ears, great unruly mop of brown hair, and high-pitched voice, Bobby was hardly the beau of which students at Manhattanville dreamed. 17-year-old Ethel had a long triangular face, widely set eyebrows, high forehead, and a maladroit tomboyish quality. (laughs) So complimentative. I know. Thanks, Lawrence Lemur. At first, Bobby was intrigued. After the trip, Bobby invited Ethel to experience a Harvard weekend. But once he met Ethel's older sister, Pat, quote, He decided that the skakel he was interested in was not named Ethel. Pat was not an adolescent prankster. Ethel was totally taken with Bobby. Ethel did not give up. And neither did her friend. This has been the story of Bobby and Ethel and Jean. (laughs) That is pretty much how the story went and how it is going to go. (laughs) Jean invited Ethel to come help with Jack's 1946 campaign in Boston, and Ethel rang doorbells and passed out flyers with an energy that matched the Kennedys. Ethel was a skakel, but Ethel was a Kennedy. She also conducted herself in such a way that she would be able to spend every second with Bobby that she could manage. Her bright smile and exuberance never more contagious. Bobby barely flinched. The next Christmas, Bobby invited Pat to spend the holidays at Hyannisport. Yes, Pat Skakel. A very obvious declaration of his intentions. Oh my gosh. So the whole Bobby and Pat thing has been going on for an entire year now. And Ethel still has hopes and is finding <laughs> yeah, after him. Exactly. She is not easily deterred. Kathleen, not kick Kennedy, Bobby and Ethel's firstborn daughter had this to say. So for two years, my mother was very disappointed. Oh, two years. That's a long time, especially when you're young like that. Years feel like forever. And she's with, with her, her sister. sister. I mean, he's, he's with, with her her sister. sister. <gasps> and she did not give up. She's At like, least she I had am Jean. the prize. At least she had Jean on her side. Yeah, exactly. To like help scheme with her. Bobby and Jean and Ethel, okay? <laughs> or I guess Bobby and Ethel and Jean. 
Nevertheless, she persisted. Guess what? Jean and Ethel did in response to Bobby inviting Pat to Hyannisport for Christmas. They decided that they had crucial homework to be done this Christmas break. This was Operation Bethel. It was determined that Ethel should come along for Christmas too, and they should make their best efforts to pry Bobby and Pat apart. They are truly just a couple of preppy posh punks. I told y'all. And in a great turn of events, Bobby was set straight. After he graduated college, he moved to the Middle East to cover the war in Israel for the Boston Post. And while he was gone, Pat Skakel called it off on the grounds that Bobby was too young and immature for her. And it also may have had to do with an Irishman. Guess who was there to catch the rebound? She met Bobby on the boardwalk. Summer of 45. Guys, can you believe that song is really actually, like Taylor Swift wrote that song about Bobby and Ethel. And it's freaking true. We were 17 and crazy, running wild, wild. Don't remember. Oh, yeah. song was playing when we walked in. The night we snuck into a yacht club party, pretending to be a duchess and a prince. And I said, oh, my. So Bobby wasn't 17. He was 20. But Ethel in 1945 was 17 years old. And there's another Taylor Swift song, a much more recent Taylor Swift song that is also inspired by events lived by Ethel Skagel Kennedy. So we'll have to talk about that. I will tell that story in the KFM. After three and a half years of trying to skip rocks on the ocean, dreaming of impossible things, and pretending to be a duchess and a prince, they decided to get married, have 11 kids, and teach them how to dream. In June of 1950, 24-year-old Robert Francis Kennedy married 22-year-old Ethel Skagel. 22. Literally, the entire Red album is Bobby and Ethel. <laughs> In true Kennedy and Skakel fashion, the night before, the boys caused a hefty bill of damage to the Harvard Club, which in true Kennedy fashion, the bill was handed directly to Joe Sr. On the big day, Ethel was glowing in a fitted white gown and pearls, of course. Joe Sr. danced with her and welcomed her officially into the Kennedy clan. She fit like a glove. She did not wash dishes, nor did she cook. Ethel played. After all, she She was was a Kennedy. Kennedy. Bobby and Ethel went to Hawaii for their honeymoon and then settled in their new home in Charlottesville, Virginia, where Bobby was attending law school. Oh, so he didn't try to escape for a baseball game with Red Faye? No, Bobby, unlike Jack, actually wanted to go home with his new wife. What a novel idea. Five years later, when Ethel's parents died tragically in a plane crash, Bobby was away campaigning and he got on a train and traveled all night to be with her. Ethel and Bobby got married in 1950. In the fall of 1951, Eunice and Jean were both still single at the time, and so they went on an extended girls' trip to the Middle East and Europe. They wore black silk gloves and skirts and experienced all the culture and chatted for weeks on end. Just sister things. Oh, that kind of makes me think of Jackie and Lee. Absolutely. 
that is crushing. <sighs> Their best times. Jackson Peaks. When they got back, Jean had such a good time with her big sister that she decided to join Eunice in her work with troubled adolescent girls. A couple weeks in, one of the girls escaped from their car, so Eunice sprung into her usual means of addressing the situation and tackled her before she got too far, as one does. Jean decided that she wanted to help people, but the good that she would offer the world would not involve wrestling with female criminals in front of the neighbors. Jean did find her home, though, with her eldest sibling. She'd be picking up forgotten towels, always in the background, doing what she could to back Jack. Don't deny you did it. Just a really quick anecdote I want to throw in here from back in those campaign trail days in 1952. When Jack was running for the Senate, there are letters of him asking his mom and sisters to organize tea parties and appearances, which is something that I never would have imagined would have been his idea or something that he was coordinating. I thought it was more of like a Rose or Joe operation. But apparently Jack was way more in the weeds with the political tea parties than I thought. Yeah. He wrote to Eunice asking for, quote, photographs of yourself with children, possibly in connection with your work with the House of the Good Shepherd in Chicago. (laughs) To his mother, he wrote, I've written to Pat and Eunice about them, and I am counting on the three of you being there. Reminding her to show up in West Virginia and host some dang tea parties. One photo of the brothers will show, we're all in this for Jack. Yeah. And then you take him to the movies (laughs) or whatever you want to (laughs) do. when working to pass legislation on intellectual disabilities during Jack's presidency, Eunice knew all too well the importance of appearance and power. She was, after all, the daughter of one Joseph P. Kennedy and the sister of one John F. Kennedy. So she used her brother Jack, the president, whenever the heck she needed to, regardless of what he thought his agenda might be for that day. They were just that close. Eunice knew her place and that she had many rights when it came to her brother. Besides, stuff that she was working on was just as important as his. Once, she called up the Oval Office and said, Jack, this group interested in mental retardation is coming to Washington. Could I have them at the White House for a reception? Well, Jackie isn't here, Jack told her. Eunice replied, Well, can I still have them at the White House? Fine, Jack sighed knowing there wasn't really anything he was going to be able to say to his sister to effectively deter her. Have them at the White House, but don't run up a big liquor bill on me. Serve some kind of punch. Fine, Eunice consigned, though Jack had already hung up. In fact, Eunice was so comfortable in her kinship and friendship with her big brother that she even called when she had no need of anything politically important. She was just bored. (laughs) She wanted to talk. So usually... Jack talked. One evening, when Eunice had such an inclination, Jack and Jackie were hosting a private dinner for their friends Tom and Joe Braden and Leonard and Felicia Burstein. Jack took her call and listened as Eunice gabbed on and on, and finally Jack turned to Leonard and casually said, You talk to her, I can't talk to her anymore. Even though Leonard had never met Eunice in his entire life, and Jack was supposed to be hosting him for dinner at the moment. To Leonard, Eunice exclaimed, Oh, come on, what are you all doing? You have all the fun, and I'm never asked when it's fun. What did you have for dinner? And then proceeded to go on, talking this perfect stranger's ear off for another 20 minutes. 
So there's this interview on YouTube with Kathleen Notkick Kennedy, Bobby and Ethel's firstborn, in which the interviewer says, I'm trying to decide if you're your father's daughter or your mother's daughter. And I would like to throw in my vote that she, in fact, is Eunice's niece. (laughs) Just watch about 30 seconds of the interview and you'll understand why. One of the White House staff, Wilbur Cohen, worked for Eunice often, and one day, as he walked into the Oval Office, Jack greeted him with, Hello, Wilbur. Has my sister been giving you trouble again? How do you know? Cohen asked, seemingly shocked that Jack already knew that he and Eunice had just had an argument. Jack simply said, Why, I know my sister. (laughs) Oh, because he loved his brother. Well into the 1950s, when it seemed that every single one of her siblings were getting married, Jean still didn't have any prospects. And she was well past 17. (laughs) She had endless career opportunities, though, and she had her family, and that was quite enough for now. Like she did with Jack and Eunice, Jean was able to work with almost all of her siblings and join in each of their worlds. Jean is the ultimate baby sister. It's true. One of her opportunities came through a serendipitous connection at Jack and Jackie's wedding. She met Father James Keller, one of the most prominent priests in the nation and the founder of the Christophers. The Christophers are a Christian group dedicated to inspiring and influencing the world with the Chinese proverb, quote, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness at their helm. Wow, that reminds me of what we talked about in KFM 12. As Meep Geese said, anyone can be a small light in a dark room. The week after she met Father Keller at Jack's wedding, Jean marched into his New York City office at 18 East 48th Street and promptly told him that she would like to work for him full-time without pay on any task he deemed fit. Quote, The idea of doing something for other people came from my parents. They both believed very strongly that those to whom much is given have responsibility. They both felt that we had a real responsibility for some kind of public service. And in fact, the innately talented and successful had a responsibility to help them. So maybe instead of canceling Nepo babies, we can just expect more from them. The task Father Keller saw fit for Jean was to go to L.A. to work on their brand new TV show, The Christopher Hour. This was during Pat and Peter's first year of marriage. So Pat was already out there and Jean was going to be out there. So Eunice and Teddy, along with Teddy's college roommate, all flew in and garaged at Pat and Peter's house. The three sisters hadn't seen each other in a long time, and they were absolutely darling. No one got a word in edgewise. They didn't care who else was around. Peter would come up and try to interrupt the conversation, but they were like sorority sisters off among themselves. It was just incredible. They had all been around the world, done all kinds of things, but they just came together like three kids. Claude E. Hooten Jr., Teddy's college roommate who had a crush on Jean. (laughs) This is Jean. Quote, We had such a very good time with each other. My family were my best friends, and I was very close to Bobby and Teddy. I mean, we all had such a good time that we didn't really want to marry. I'm surprised that any of my kids got married. Joe Sr. (laughs) He's honest. Finally, in 1955, at 27 years old, Jean felt that maybe she would like to be married. I do like marriage. (laughs) She met a New York businessman who was more Irish than her own father. Stephen Edward Smith, quote, could sing the old Irish songs with heart and soul and listen attentively to the twice-told tales of immigrant life. 
His grandfather, William Cleary, had worked on the Erie Canal and had scrimped and struggled to buy a tugboat that became the fleet managed by the family company. Wow, that's super similar to the Kennedy story. He was also already familiar with politics as it ran in his family bloodline too. His father had been a three-term congressman. Family business and politics and Irish heritage. Seems like a match. But we're still missing one thing. Was he Catholic? (laughs) I have searched high and low, and I cannot find such an answer. So many of you, most of you, I think, (laughs) have been Kennedy experts for years and years and know much more than me and Bethany do. So if you know anything about Gene and Stephen's relationship, and if Stephen grew up Catholic, DM us on Instagram. Message us on Patreon, let us know, and we'll update everybody. Here's Jean. Quote, Daddy gave me the choice of a big wedding and a small present, or a small wedding and a big present. She chose in the same fashion with which she chose the ski trip over the debutante debut to society and received an enormous diamond pin. (laughs) Although, Jean and Stephen were married on May 19th, 1956, In St. Patrick's Cathedral. So I'm not sure how small of a wedding that actually was. actually was. (laughs) But I guess for Kennedy standards. And guess what? Eunice was married there too. I'm talking about the legendary St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. At Jean's ceremony, Teddy gave a toast to his closest big sister. He started his speech by telling about what it was like being the youngest kids out of so many and all with such big personalities. One symptom of that was always being shuffled around and giving up his bed to one guest or another. One time, he even had to sleep on the massage table in Palm Beach. So they are the Kennedys, yet they don't have enough beds for their son to be able to sleep on a mattress. And actually, fun fact, they did not update the house at all since when they bought it in what, the The 20s? And it didn't have heating or air conditioning. They could have moved or built onto Hyannisport. Or completely renovated it, Jackie style. Because they bought these houses when Joe had like just become a millionaire. Just barely tapped into his fortune. And then they made way more money than that later on. And, and then, then Jack just becomes the president it. and they still <laughs> have no air conditioning. I was up at Hyannisport and the same thing happened. Gene said to me once, listen, Teddy. I know that you've been going through all this, and we're going to sail up to Maine. I want you to have a room by yourself and come along. I got on the boat, and I had my room decorated and thought, that was awful nice of old Jeannie to do a thing like that for me. We were just about to cut away. We were actually in motion already, and a couple came down the dock waving, Hey, Jeannie! Hey, Jeannie, we finally made it! My gosh, Jeannie said. We're going to have to change. You'll have to sleep with me. That was the first time in my life I slept with my sister. Or with any woman. (laughs) That's good old Jeannie. The entire reception hall erupted with laughter and Jean covered her face in embarrassment. Interestingly, once Jean had her two sons, Ethel and Bobby's house started to look quite overwhelming. Quote, For Ethel's children, all life was to be experienced. If that meant dumping a live fish into the swimming pool in Palm Beach, or turning the basement at Hickory Hill into a menagerie, well, that was just fine. Whatever messes resulted, the latest maid, nanny, lackey, or Kennedy hanger-on would clean it up. Her kids were Kennedys too. 
and the grounds were a boot camp where the children competed in everything from football to tree climbing to running with all of the competitive fervor of their father. And so, Jean's kids saw a lot less of their Hickory Hill cousins growing up and a lot more of their White House cousins. I had a baby boy then, and with a new baby, that was my life. Jackie's children were the same age, and so I went to the White House a lot, and we played together, and I did a lot of things. My husband and the president got along very well. They were good friends, and so we did much stuff together. It was that kind of life. The trouble was Stephen's relationship with alcohol. And like the rest of the Kennedy family, we suspect with other women. There is a seemingly elusive story in Lawrence Lemer's book, The Kennedy Women, about when Jean was visiting Pat and Peter in California and Evans, Peter's manager, was talking and hanging out with them. And then Jean just erupted in like a fit of crying. And he was like, wait, what did I say? I'm sorry. And they said, oh, no, 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 she's fine. She just does that. So it seems like Jean was really struggling at certain points in her married life. And I'm not sure exactly what it was attributed to, but I suspect it was Stephen's drinking and probably infidelity as well. But it seems like she didn't feel she was able to talk about it much. And then to make life even darker, tragedy struck the Kennedy family again. The cornerstone, the patriarch, the one who was always taking care of each of them would never be able to do so in the same way ever again. We will tell the full story of Joe Sr.'s stroke in next week's KFM, how every one of his kids rushed to his side without question. But in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Jack lost the dad he had always known and the strong presence that had always had his back. Jack had been around long enough, however, to know that he didn't have to allow illness to take what it didn't actually take. Though Joe Sr. could no longer walk or talk, he was still in there, sharp and opinionated, and as Joe Sr. as he ever was. And so, quote, I called the White House every morning and said that Mr. Kennedy wanted to talk to the president. When Jack came on the phone, he would say what was going on, and Mr. Kennedy would say, ah, or, oh, a kind of grunt, acting either pleased or not pleased. And then the next day, Jack would tell him how it came out. Luella Hennessy. If the Kennedys knew anything, it was how to continue living throughout life's bitter moments. The Kennedy inheritance, the ability to not be got down. In June of 1963, it was Jack's turn to travel to Europe in his own style. Because Jackie was six months pregnant and had a history of miscarriages and harsh pregnancies, she was not able to accompany her husband overseas. In her place, Jack asked Eunice and Jean, the most Irish sisters he had, to stand at his side on his journey back to the family's homeland, Ireland. Do you know it is impossible for an Irish Catholic to get into the Somerset Club in Boston? Jack told Red Fay once. If I moved back to Boston, even after being president, it would make no difference. Like within the Kennedy family, where there are outsiders, there's also a sense of unity. It's us against the world. The Irish felt that camaraderie toward Jack. He was one of them, and he made it all the way. 
He was the most powerful man in the world, and he was proudly and loudly Irish. Jack's visit was a gigantic homecoming, a family reunion. He was the surrogate for the millions who had immigrated to America and were still immigrating. And in cheering him, they were cheering themselves, their own victory and courage. Lawrence Lemer. And the Irish were not the only ones that the Kennedys gave voice to. There's one story that Cassie told me that I just had to squeeze in here. Apparently, when Jack was running for president, the nuns weren't supposed to necessarily like be... Have political affiliation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they would write underneath their bibs, vote for Kennedy. And then when the priest wasn't around or wasn't looking and they were like walking through the streets, the nuns would act like they were so hot and like fan themselves with their bibs. <laughs> and it would flap up and just say, vote for Kennedy. Flash, so they could, vote like, for Kennedy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Obviously, there's just so much pride and excitement when you're in a marginalized group and you're finally getting representation. This is Jean's memory of the experience. Quote, The outpouring of love was really overwhelming. I mean, it's very exciting to have somebody leave Ireland and have their descendant, the President of the United States, 100 years later come back to visit. It's really tear time. And he was so great, you know, responding to everybody. And he was so thrilled himself. He was just thrilled how they responded. I never saw him so excited. Oh yeah, it was so touching. Such a poetic experience. After the Kennedys left Ireland, they made one more very important stop nearby. Side by side, Jean, Eunice, and Jack were seen walking silently up the peaceful country road at Chatsworth. It was an emotional trip, one that would never be forgotten. There they stood, staring at those wretched words etched so permanently into cold stone. Joy she gave, joy she has found. Jack may not have known the lasting legacy this trip would have, but he knew immediately how much it meant to him. And he forced his family to gather at Hyannisport as soon as he, Eunice, and Jean got back to watch the recording of the trip together. Then, the next night, he called everybody and said, Hey, I was thinking, you know, it might be a great idea to watch that again this evening. And so, the whole family said, All right, Jack. Yes, let's do it. It was a special trip, wasn't it? So, they gathered and they watched the entire thing all over again. <laughs> then, the next night, oh, Jack got to thinking. Oh you're kidding. <laughs> yep. So, the entire Kennedy family, for the third night in a row, gathered around to watch Jack's Ireland vlog. Oh, because they loved their brother. Throughout all of this, Jack's presidency, there are about 12 timelines and storylines running at all times. It's a big reason why Jack, in order to survive, compartmentalized himself to an extreme. Quote, No one ever knew John Kennedy. Not all of him. Charles Bartlett. Not Bobby. Not Rose or Joe Sr. Not Honey Fitz. Not his closest cabinet officers. Not a single person ever knew all of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Like Kick, 
Different people saw different sides. Different stained glass pieces of a larger mosaic window. Some people, like the ones we will discuss next episode, only saw one piece. A plunging royal blue or a dandelion yellow. Others were privileged. They got to see many of Jack's colors. But never all of them. One person who was very privileged when it came to seeing different sides of John F. Kennedy was his little brother, Bobby. There were some sides of JFK he very much did not see and definitely didn't understand, but he did see many of them. Most of them, I think. (laughs) And one facet of the person that was JFK was the Kennedy brothers JFK and RFK, relationship with a young evangelical pastor and activist, MLK. The fact that John F. Kennedy embraced the concept of civil rights, not just for the United States, but for the world, is the hallmark of his legacy. Andrew Young, civil rights pioneer who worked with MLK. But it didn't start out that way. Quote, I really don't believe that John F. Kennedy understood civil rights at the beginning of his presidency. And so everything that happened was a rude awakening. But he knew what was morally right. Andrew Young. Here's MLK on JFK. In the election, when I gave my testimony for Kennedy, my impression then was that he had the intelligence and the skill and the moral fervor to give the leadership we've been waiting for and to do what no president has ever done. Now I'm convinced that he has the understanding and political skill, but so far I'm afraid that the moral passion is missing. Jack was pushing for integration during his first few months as president, but it seemed like a token prize compared to what the Black community knew that they deserved. In March of 1961, a controversy sprung up in Charleston, South Carolina. A Black member of the National Civil War Commission was planning to attend an event at Fort Sumner and had no place to stay. He tried every hotel. None of them welcomed him. Jack was notified of the injustice and immediately wrote a letter to General Ulysses S. Grant III, the head of the commission, asking for equal treatment of all of the commission members. The response was that Kennedy had no right to intrude into the privately owned hotel operations and that the commission had no business interfering in racial matters. John F. Kennedy, president of the United States, was unable to convince any Charleston hotel to cooperate, and so the commemoration dinner was moved to a nearby U.S. naval base that segregated its personnel. That right there shows you what RFK, JFK, MLK, the Black community, what they're up against. The freaking president of the United States and Jack, with all his charm, cannot get people to move. Jack was mortified. This event, layered on top of his lack of understanding of civil rights, caused him to shy away from confronting racial issues for the remainder of his early presidency. MLK, even after the Kennedys freed him from prison during the campaign, was not invited to the inauguration, nor was he invited to a meeting of civil rights leaders in Bobby's office in March of 1961. A King biographer 
Taylor Branch, explained that. King's name was too sensitive at the time, too associated with ongoing demonstrations that were vexing politicians in the South. Jack wouldn't even meet with King privately. He denied King's request for a private meeting due to the, quote, present and international situation. It's almost as if Jack had to experience things for himself in order for the reality of the issue to land at all. Similar to how he reacted to people wanting him to address the disability community and move forward with that in the early years of his congressional career. He was the same way with civil rights. It was almost a mirror image. When the Kennedy administration finally chose to intervene on behalf of the Freedom Riders, they did so at a significant political cost. According to PBS. And I'll pause right there. Does everyone know who the Freedom Riders were? Let's lay it all out and start at the beginning. Well, not the very beginning, but (laughs) a little bit further back. In 1960, Due to restrictive and racially discriminatory voter registration practices, the overwhelming majority of voters in the segregated South was white. Does everyone get that? Because the voting registration regulations, all of that stuff, were completely corrupt, most of the people who were able to vote in the South were white. Quote, This block of voters, the so-called Solid South, was key to the fortunes of the Democratic Party. What? The base of the Democratic Party was the essentially white voting South, said journalist Evan Thomas. That is why, when the Kennedy administration aligned itself with civil rights, it was at the expense of a huge chunk of their support in the segregated South, which is why Bobby was terrified to make a move for MLK and get him out of jail just two months before the election. And thanks to JFK and LBJ, the Democrats lost the support of the Solid South in national presidential elections for most of the next half century. Oh. And I'm guessing you can understand why. So that's why we think of the South as red. It was during JFK's presidency that they literally flipped the voting white South, flipped from being blue to being red. So in our lifetime history, it has been red. I wonder. Yeah. That's like just really. This is why. So the Freedom Riders. The Freedom Riders were a group of black and white civil rights activists who participated in freedom rides. They were bus trips through the South in 1961 to protest segregated bus terminals. When the bus stopped, instead of walking around the freaking building to the back of the terminal, they walked in the front and used the whites only restrooms and lunch counters. As you'd expect, just as they made it into the Deep South, the Freedom Riders were arrested by police and beaten horrifically by white protesters. However, in their goal, they were successful. The events gained international attention and spread awareness about the civil rights movement across the nation and into the White House. The Kennedys were not racist. That is largely acknowledged. They valued people in a profound way. But at first, they were unwilling to throw their hat too far into the ring. And isn't that just as bad? And aren't we all guilty of that? 
This will be discussed further in KFM 16. So all of that happened in March. And then finally, by the end of April 1961, the White House agreed to a secret off-the-record discussion between King, Bobby, and several Justice Department officials in a private dining room at the Washington Mayflower Hotel. MLK was able to go back to the White House afterwards and got a few minutes of private discussion with Jack. And Bobby gave him the private phone numbers of Justice Department officials John Siegenthaler and Burke Marshall with permission to call them anytime voter registration workers got in trouble and could not get through to the FBI. It sounds promising. Kind of. A few months later, the Freedom Riders had set off on their protest ride. According to History.com, quote, The original group of 13 Freedom Riders, seven African Americans and six whites, left Washington, D.C. on a Greyhound bus on May 4, 1961. Their plan was to reach New Orleans, Louisiana on May 17th to commemorate the seventh anniversary of the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision, which ruled that segregation of the nation's public schools was unconstitutional. The group traveled through Virginia and North Carolina, drawing little public notice. The first violent incident occurred on May 12th in Rock Hill, South Carolina. By May 15th, the newspapers started to publish stories about the violence, and alarmed, JFK said to Harris Wolford, Jack's special assistant to the president for civil rights, quote, Tell them to call it off. Stop them. When the Freedom Riders, badly beaten, did call off the rest of their trip on the bus and diverted to the Birmingham airport, they were trapped by bomb threats. Bobby asked, or maybe yelled, at Siegenthaler to go help them. So Siegenthaler went down to Birmingham and got them on flights, escorting the Freedom Riders to their destination in New Orleans. These actions showed political courage and gained some real credibility with Black America. From this point on, the Kennedys were able to work more closely with civil rights leaders moving forward. But a lot of the civil rights leaders thought that the administration was doing only about as much as they had to and much less than needed to be done. In response, a group of Nashville students again went to Birmingham determined to complete the bus trip to New Orleans. They were warned against it, Many people feared that they would be killed, but they were willing to accept whatever the trip would bring their way. Police were already on alert, so the Nashville Freedom Riders were almost immediately arrested for violating segregation laws and hauled off to jail. Jack called Alabama Governor John Patterson to get them out of there, but the governor was conveniently fishing in the Gulf of Mexico and was unreachable. Jack was like, yeah, no, that is not going to work. So he called again, and Patterson just sent a more direct message through his secretary to the president of the United States that he was not going to talk and that he was not going to help. Jack kindly let him know in response that if he did not protect the Freedom Riders, he would be sending in federal forces, regardless of state police or legal opinion, to get the job done. On the other side of Washington, D.C., Bobby was trying to get a bus down there so that when Jack got them out of prison, they'd have safe transportation. No takers. The only way Bobby was able to get 
Greyhound, the bus company, to send a freaking bus was by pretty much threatening a company supervisor. Quote, Do you know how to drive a bus? The man replied, No. So Bobby said, Well, surely somebody in the damn bus company can drive a bus, can't they? I think you had better be getting in touch with Mr. Greyhound, whoever Greyhound is, and somebody better give us an answer to this question. I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Gene Gone. <laughs> He's like Robin Hood, but bullying instead of stealing. I'll bully the bully. You think you're a bully? I'll bully you. Yeah. <laughs> Come here. That is exactly accurate. That is exactly accurate. That's funny. I am, the government is, going to be very much upset if this group does not get to continue their trip. Finally, that, combined with Jack's threat to send in federal officers, got the Freedom Riders on their way. And Robert Dalek's book says that we know the contents of Bobby's phone conversation with the Greyhound Company because eavesdroppers on Bobby's telephone call leaked it to the press, which ended up running as a front-page story across the South saying that Bobby was backing and abetting the Freedom Riders, which should be great press. But in the South, in the 1960s, it was not good. Bobby also didn't get much credit with the civil rights camp because they viewed his actions as reacting to the situation rather than leading such an important statement. Quote, I never recovered from it, Bobby later reported. The Southern politicians involved undermined the entire Kennedy administration's influence with Southern politicians from then on. They made Kennedy life on the Hill a nightmare in any way that they could. And then if you know anything about people, you probably know the story gets worse. When the Freedom Riders arrived in Montgomery, they were instantly mobbed with absolutely no police to be found anywhere. Because it was against the law, the police just abandoned them. Like, if they were there, they would have to enforce the law. They would have to implement order. And they didn't want to. So they just abandoned them. That makes me so freaking sick. Even Siegenthaler. Bobby's guy that he sent down to escort the Freedom Riders was beaten with pipes while trying to protect two women who were being attacked. And he was left unconscious on the ground for half an hour before being taken to the hospital. I mean, there was just no one around, no help, nobody cared. Half an hour just laying there. I'd like to do a mini-sode over Siegenthaler. He's from Nashville and he's pretty cool. He is also the reporter who witnessed the planning meeting that decided that Bobby would be the attorney general. That's John Siegenthaler. So Patterson, the governor of Alabama, refused to discuss the issue. After a phone call with Jack, Bobby sent in federal forces. Martin Luther King Jr. was also heading to Montgomery at this time to preach to the Freedom Riders at the Baptist Church. And since Bobby couldn't convince him not to go due to the danger, he sent 50 federal marshals to meet him at the airport and escort him. Byron White, Bobby's deputy attorney general, met with Patterson, who demanded the withdrawal of the federal marshals, and White subsequently asked Jack to do it. Take the federal forces out of Alabama. Jack rejected their suggestions. 
Bobby took the lead in negotiating with local law enforcement and organizing the federal marshals for MLK's speech, where 1,500 Freedom Rider supporters gathered to listen. Federal marshals were keeping violent mobs back from the church with tear gas. Then, I'm not quite sure why or how, but the marshals were replaced with Alabama National Guardsmen, who then would not allow anyone to leave the church. King called Bobby and reprimanded him over the phone. Bobby responded with, Now, Reverend, you know just as well as I do that if it hadn't been for the U.S. Marshals, you'd be as dead as Kelsey's nuts right now. (laughs) This did not amuse King, who asked after he got off the phone, Who's Kelsey? That's what I'm asking. (laughs) Apparently, it's an Irish expression. When Patterson, the Alabama governor, complained that the presence of the U.S. Marshals in Alabama was, quote, destroying us politically, Bobby replied, John, it's more important that these people in the church survive physically than for us to survive politically. As if that needed explaining. Finally, the people trapped inside the church were allowed to leave, and the Kennedy administration felt a sense of triumph that they had navigated and maintained a decent sense of law and order. The civil rights advocates felt no such way. Then, Bobby called for a cooling-off period. They've made their point, Bobby stated. James Farmer of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, responded immediately, Negroes have been cooling off for a hundred years and would be in a deep freeze if they cooled off any further. King responded in Time Magazine, Wait means never. Jack was bewildered as to why the Black activists weren't thrilled about the progress he was making. Kennedy asked Wolford, What in the world do they think I should do? Don't they know that I've done more for civil rights than any president in American history? How could any man have done more than I've done? But it seems that deep down, he knew he could do more. Because by 1962, Jack refused to be photographed with any of the racist Southern governors. But this was never a single man's fight. This was a brother's battle. Bobby was the one from 1961 through 1963, pushing as hard as he could behind the scenes to get Jack to make larger moves on civil rights. Quote, Bobby was convinced that unless the administration delivered on greater equality for blacks, it would miss a chance to advance simple justice for an oppressed minority, lose liberal support, and alienate millions of voters by appearing ineffective and weak. As always, Bobby was motivated both by moral cause and because he wanted to give his big brother the chance to win a second term of presidency in 1964. In June of 1963, Vivian Malone and James Hood arrived at the University of Alabama campus to become the first Black students to ever attend the university. When they arrived that morning, on the first day of school, Governor Wallace was waiting for them and stood blocking the door. His words, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. 
Oh, you simply have no eyes. So, so, so sad. Like I could literally cry. So sad, so shocking, so disgusting. So makes me want to throw up. And now I understand why Bobby was such a bully. (laughs) President Kennedy intervened and federalized the Alabama National Guard to force Wallace to comply. Against every advisor's suggestions, Kennedy went on live television and gave an appeal to the country on behalf of a moral cause. Bobby was the only one out of his entire cabinet that supported this decision. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves. Yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. It is not enough to pin the blame on others to say that this is the problem of one section of the country or another, or deplore the fact that we face. A great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right as well as reality. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right, that your children cannot have the chance to develop whatever talents they have, that the only way that they are going to get their rights is to go in the streets and demonstrate. I think we owe them, and we owe ourselves, a better country than that. Therefore, I am asking your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and to provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves to give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talents. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act, to make a commitment it has not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. And the following week, on June 19th, 1963, Kennedy asked for the most bold civil rights bill in the nation's history. He proposed the Civil Rights Act of 1963, which would ensure that any citizen with a sixth grade education the right to vote and to end segregation in public facilities. He also asked for the attorney general, his brother, Bobby, to enforce court-ordered school desegregation and to end job discrimination, providing funds for job training to help Blacks better compete for good jobs. What month is this? This is 63? June 19th, 1963. 
1963. And he got shot in November? Yeah. Immediately after proposing the bill, everything else Kennedy tried to pass started failing. Even just public works, random, menial, run-of-the-mill, daily stuff would not go through. A reporter from the Chattanooga Times said in May of 1962, Kennedy will lose the segregationist vote, but he'll get 110% of the Negro vote, no matter how much Martin Luther King and others criticized him for doing less than the maximum for civil rights. In a close election in Tennessee, the Negroes hold the balance. The reporter was right about the public's opinion, but he was wrong about King. He praised Kennedy's bill, calling it, quote, the most forthright ever presented by an American president. But he's like, it's more forthright than even Abraham Lincoln because not only are you saying you can't treat people like animals, you have to treat people like people. Like he's saying equal. Yes. Actually equal. Yes. He predicted that they would, quote, take the nation a long, long way towards the realization of ideals of freedom and justice for all people. If they got the chance. I still do not think I have grasped just how risky and alone Jack and Bobby are in this because earlier, well, right now, it's like making me think about his assassination that's about to happen in five months. But also earlier, you said that even the people that were in his cabinet that Jack elected himself or appointed himself Mm -hmm. to have his back and to think similarly to him and what he believed was right. Abandoned ship, completely aborted mission when it came to civil rights. It was truly Jack and Bobby alone on an island because the civil rights activists weren't fully in support of the way that they were operating and they didn't have any of the political support. And so it's just them going out in the hall and talking, them meeting in their office and talking, them getting on the phone with each other. And two individuals, just these two brothers, trying to figure out how to guide the entire country by themselves. And do it in a way that is sustainable and that will even remotely be accepted by the public. Yeah, be effective. Knowing that nobody else is supporting them, King stated, quote, You know, they don't understand the social revolution going on in the world, and therefore they don't understand what we're doing. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in this stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. And then finally, Jack understood, and he was willing to plant both feet and let the entire world see where he really stood, no matter what the consequences might be. 
Quote, The question is whether the world will exist half-slave or half-free. John F. Kennedy. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion. Some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on Earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, episode 16 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main source for this episode was An Unfinished Life, John Fitzgerald Kennedy by Robert Dalek, and The Kennedy Women by Lawrence Lemer. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. He gave everything for that. And you can't say that he didn't, and you can't take that away. Don't deny Say what you, you want. Don't deny you did it. Say what you want about the Kennedys, but don't deny he did it. Don't deny they did it. <laughs> Again, with the callback to KFM 12, the eerie ties between MLK, Anne Frank, Meep Geese, and the Kennedys. Cassie quoted, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And JFK actually attributed it to the same person that I had originally credited in the KFM. So Edmund Burke, shout out. I think it's actually from someone before him, but no one has ever been able to determine who it was. With a good conscience, our only sure reward. With history, the final judge of our deeds. Let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. JFK, everybody. John F. Kennedy. Good old Jack. Because we can't do nothing. We have to do it. God do can't. something. Do something for these children. For real. Like, God can't just be good and then that fall down upon the earth. We have to do something. Between good and evil. You can't do nothing. Because evil is doing something. (laughs) The night we snuck into a yacht club party. And that's where we started this episode. And a prince. I told you. No, I love it. Because like that was Jack. Yep. Rewatching the Irish vlog 10 times. (laughs) And playing with rubber... Duckies and <laughs> <laughs>